signify their knowledge thereof. Did Adam and Eve tell them about their life in the Garden of Eden, how they sought knowledge and were for that reason exiled from paradise? Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. I really can't emphasize how important my partner has been to the process of my writing and recording. Beyond just their encouragement behind this bizarre project that I've undertaken, they've served as a sounding board for my ideas and a source of valuable insight. I tend to get lost in theoretical concerns. My partner grounds my work in real-world, lived experience. And their help was especially valuable with regards to this piece in particular. I had read the text and done a great deal of research and had a bunch of ideas about its meaning bouncing around in my head— but it was my partner who helped me to clarify the nuggets of real substantial insight. I think they're probably listening to this now, so let me just say thank you for helping me figure this stuff out. Cain and Abel is another one of those stories in which we've always been told one thing by religious authorities, but which likely meant something entirely different to the original authors. And this is a story so ancient that the original meaning is likely forever lost to us, but we can at least attempt to see beyond what has been made of it in the modern era, and what has been made of it in that regard has likely been constructed to serve certain unscrupulous ends. First up, news in the podcast. I've been examining my audience metrics, and I realize that less than 70% of my audience probably speaks English as a first language. One, That means I need to take care to make sure that my English communicates well to everyone who speaks it. And two, it means I want to acknowledge my appreciation for those who are listening to this in what may be their second language. Apparently a full 10% of my audience is German, for example. Und ich danke sie. Ich kenne nicht, warum sie haben zu meinem Podcast versammelt, aber ich danke sie und heil Satan. I have a few listeners in Kenya, apparently, which is really exciting. If you're listening to this in Kenya, let me know what your first language is and I'll try to learn a few words and say thank you. Send me a podcast voice message, send me an email to a satanistreadsthebible at gmail.com, send me a physical letter to a satanistreadsthebible, P.O. Box 17154, Boulder, Colorado 80308. I would love to hear from you. Seriously, it would make my day. Also, still trying out the sermon format. I'd appreciate it very much if you sent me an email uh, to the aforementioned address to let me know how that's going. News and religion. There's a great article on the Think blog on the NBC News website. Odessa, Texas mass shooting responses tie together evangelical Christians and guns. It's an excellent analysis looking into the strange relationship between American gun violence and evangelical Christianity. According to a Marist poll on gun regulation in the United States, most Americans seem to believe that the causes of epidemic gun violence are the availability of guns and limited access to mental health care. But according to this NBC article, evangelicals are very much of a different mind, believing that gun violence is caused by American secularization. This is curious for a few reasons. One, there are countries such as the Nordic nations that are much more secular than the United States but which experience much less gun violence. If secularization were to cause gun violence, we would expect to see a positive correlation between the two, but no such correlation exists. 
Additionally, there is an obvious link between the rhetoric of the El Paso shooter and the anti-immigration rhetoric of President Donald Trump, for whom evangelicals have historically been a very strong base. The fact that there is such strong support for Trump among evangelicals is one of the great hypocrisies of Christian hegemony, and indicates to me that they don't have much of a penchant for moving the logs from their own eyes before criticizing the motes in others' eyes. This also seems hypocritical with regard to the teachings of Jesus, who was certainly a revolutionary, but who also said that one should turn the other cheek after being struck rather than taking violent action against an assailant. And now, this week's reading, Cain Murders Abel. Immediately following the second account of creation, in which Adam and Eve are created and subsequently cast out from the Garden of Eden, which I wrote about in my essay, Another Account of the Creation, we have the story of Cain and Abel, which begins in the fourth chapter of Genesis. Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve, both of them having been conceived and born after their parents' exile. Abel's job is to tend the sheep, while Cain is assigned to farming. At some point, they make an offering to God. Cain giving him fruit that he had grown, and Abel giving him rich lamb meat. Quoting, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4-5 through 5 from the New Revised Standard Version. Regard is here translated from sha'a which seems to mean something like to look at in consideration. So this is to say, God did not even bother to see what Cain had offered. He may have given the barest of glances, but had not considered it beyond that. Seeing Cain's resulting dismay, God says, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Or, King James Version, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. This is quite enigmatic. It took me some time in conversation to come to an understanding of what may be going on here. First, I'll note that this narrative continues the depiction of God as the one named by the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, who is imminent to the world. God is physically present to Cain and Abel, as they are both able to confirm whether God had regarded their respective sacrifices. Second, God is looking upon Cain and seeing both anger and fallen countenance, the latter being something that might be better described as sadness. And then there is the difference in meaning conveyed by that critical turn, shalt, in the King James Version to must in the New Revised Standard Version. The former conveys inevitability, the latter necessity, and the two meanings do not always overlap. But why has God not even deigned to look upon what Cain has offered? If God is omniscient, then he has planned this and had intended to inspire Cain to murder his brother. Again, this makes God seem a malevolent trickster, but again we see evidence in the text that the ancient Hebrews did not believe this of God. After Cain murders Abel, God asks him, Where is your brother Abel? And what have you done? Genesis chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, both indicating a lack of knowledge of things that an omniscient God would know perfectly well. God may have some extraordinary powers of perception. God is able to hear Abel's blood crying out to him from the ground. But this is a different from omniscience. 
So what then is God suggesting? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And here accepted might also be translated as exalted or dignified. It seems there are two possibilities, the first being that Cain had been an ineffective farmer and that the fruits that he had offered were of diminished quality. God would then be saying, once you do a better job, I will consider your offering. I don't see this interpretation as being impossible, but it doesn't seem to reflect the text. The text does not say that God regarded Cain's offering and rejected it, but that he did not regard it at all. And Abel, whose offering was regarded, was not noted as having been accepted, exalted, or dignified in any way as a result. So then the interpretation seems closer to, why do you care what I think? It seems then that God is asking Cain to take pride in his accomplishments in terms of their own inherent value to himself and not because they are pleasing or displeasing to God. But what of the third line? If you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is the first occurrence of the word sin in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew is chata'ah, and sin is the only English word I can find that seems to neatly correspond. No explanation is given in the text surrounding this passage as to what sin is. It must have been a concept already deeply encoded in the culture of the ancient Hebrews, and I wish I knew better what exactly they meant by it. I can only assume that it lines up with our common modern understanding. Odd that the word was not used to refer to Eve's having eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. I've often heard the fundamentalist refer to that act as the original sin, the first sin which all people somehow inherit— what they call the first sin was not even called that in their own text. In modern English, of course, sin means an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. That's from Google Dictionary. Sin is first shown to us personified. It lurks at the door, and it desires Cain. Perhaps God means here that should Cain fail to take pride in his own work and to work for himself first, he will be tempted to somehow transgress against God. The King James Version is more enigmatic still, while still personifying sin. And unto thee shall be sin's desire, and thou shalt rule over him. To master and to rule are translated from the Hebrew mashal, which appears to mean exactly what we would expect those words to mean in English discourse. Odd that God does not say that Cain must reject or deny sin, as one might reject someone who desires them, but that he must master it. Generally, we understand the verb to master to mean that one makes something their tool, and not only that one not be subject to that thing themselves. My partner had some insight here when I was talking about these ideas with them during a walk in the early night. They had heard what I had said about God asking Cain to do his work for himself and not for God, and had applied that to both God's third statement to Cain and to what I had been talking about with them regarding Hegel, Nietzsche, and Marx— Say that one is alienated from their own work and takes no joy in it. What then is left to them when they see the works of free individuals? Envy. And is envy not a sin? As I said, that hasn't been clarified at this stage. And in fact, the Bible never expressly equates envy or jealousy with sin. But it is one of the seven deadly sins, widely known even in popular culture, for example, the Diablo franchise, uh, which comes to us not from the Bible but from early Christian teachers. And what makes envy a sin? Let's start with Hegel, by which I mean let's start with Alexandra Kozhev. 
Kojev's introduction to the reading of Hegel is more than the title suggests. It's an independent and striking work of philosophy that goes forward directly from Hegel and develops and argues its own ideas from Hegel's work, and it ties Hegel to Bataille, whose theory of religion sheds light on the offering that Cain and Abel made to God and was greatly inspired by Kojev's work, and I'll be getting to that in a few paragraphs. Kojev's introduction begins with an exposition on the master-slave dialectic, which appears in Hegel, Nietzsche, and Marx in different forms. To summarize, in all aspects of life, an individual relates to other individuals as either a master or as a slave. The four philosophers approach this both as a historical reality, as with the Greeks or the Americans or any other historical slave-holding society, and as something more subtle, an aspect of interpersonal relations on even diminutive scales. In Hegel, both master and slave seek recognition, the acknowledgement by another free individual that one is likewise a free individual. The slave can achieve freedom by freeing themselves of slavery. The master is incapable of freedom because true recognition cannot come from the slave who is not a free equal to the master. While the slave is a slave, they have no agency of their own what would seem to be their own agency being only a proxy for the master's will. And while the master is a master, they have no agency of their own. Being alienated from their work because it is the slave who ultimately performs it, even though it is not of their will. God is then saying, If you fail to do work for yourself, then you subject yourself to envy. If you fail to do work for yourself, for your own enjoyment and satisfaction, then you willingly subjugate yourself to me and to those whom you may feel may be doing superior work. In this, you take on the role of slave and lose yourself to the will of the master. God is explicating for him the dangers of this. Envy is a degradation of the self, a loss of freedom and identity. If Cain submits to envy, he will have to struggle with it in order to make himself free again, to make himself master of it, as in the text. Instead, he murders his brother, whose godly favor he desired. In doing so, he cuts himself off from what would have led him back to freedom, the recognition of himself by Abel as a free and equal being, which he could only have by first honoring his own work for himself. For if Abel honored Cain's work without Cain first honoring it himself, Cain would be dependent on Abel for his selfhood rather than attaining selfhood through an interdependence between free individuals. Quick break to talk about what goes into creating this thing and why I need your support to keep doing it. Between researching, writing content, scripting the podcast, recording it, and editing it, I spend between 20 and 30 hours on this project every week, and especially in terms of books, I spend a fair amount of money on it as well. I care a great deal about creating awesome, interesting content for my listeners, and I need your support to keep making that happen. There are lots of options available, and I really don't need that much at all from any given listener. Just $2 a month not only supports my work, but gets you access to cool bonus content. And you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash Bible. And if you go to the podcast page on Anchor, anchor.com slash Bible, there's an option to support this podcast for varying amounts of money. If you're going to go that route, just go with the 99 cent option, because for more than that, you might as well sign up on Patreon and get the aforementioned bonus content. But hey, if you don't care about the bonus content and just want to give me $10 a month, I'm not going to stop you. And great appreciation to everyone who has signed up so far. It means a lot to me. And now back to Cain murders Abel. Back to the question, what makes envy a sin? I've read some mystical interpretations of religion that speak of sin as acts that separate one from God. 
As I have elsewhere elaborated, the nature of God is the coming into awareness of the self, and as we see in Kozhev, we are cut off from this when we subordinate the world, make ourselves master over it. And as per the Bible, this is what we do when we envy, for envy arises when we are alienated from our own work, and for this reason God has taught that what is best is to take pride in one's own work. As well, if we are made in the image of God and we are unable to take pride in our work, then likewise is God unable to take pride in their work, which is us. And what would it mean for God to have no pride in us? I don't think that it would mean good outcomes for us. There is, again, the coming flood. There is an interesting parallel here in the Isha Upanishad, a sacred text of Hinduism of unknown age and origin. It begins, All this, everything that moves in this moving world, must be pervaded by the Lord. Enjoy what has been abandoned. Do not covet anyone's wealth. The translator, Dr. Valerie Roebuck, describes in the notes the difficulty of translating that second line. Much like Logos, see my essay and podcast on Christmas, uh, Satanism, Christmas, and the birth of Christ Jesus. The Sanskrit word from which this phrase is translated is highly polysemous, and Roebuck notes, probably the author of the Upanishad wanted us to think of all these meanings. Enjoy what has been abandoned is enigmatic, but I won't explore it here. I will likely write, a Satanist reads the Upanishads at some point. In any case, we see a warning against envy. The Upanishad continues, saying that one must seek to live a hundred years just doing work here. In other words, do work for yourself, for your own survival, and seems to imply that those who do not follow this teaching are self-slayers, who would go to a sunless world covered with blind darkness after their death. But Tai might help us to answer the question, for what reason were Cain and Abel making an offering to God to begin with? The text does not indicate that this is something that God taught or commanded of them or of their parents. This must have been so a part of ancient Hebrew culture that they thought it self-evident. If there are gods imminent to you, make them an offering. That seems entirely reasonable. If you encounter a being more powerful than you, offer something to ask their favor. This isn't at all unique to the religions of the this isn't at all unique to the religion of the ancient Hebrews. Sacrifice seems to have been common in the ancient world, practiced by the ancient Greeks, the Romans, those who practiced the ancient Vedic religion on the Indian subcontinent, and various pagan peoples. Humans have at least escaped the planet's atmosphere and traveled to other worlds, and even beyond our own solar system now, and we've encountered no beings that are in nature like ourselves except more powerful. We see forces greater than ourselves, but no beings. But the ancient Hebrews couldn't have known this, and so imagined, not at all without good reason, beings more powerful than themselves, perhaps in a hierarchy of power, and called such beings angels, gods, and other names. And they thought, if one was to encounter one of these beings, what might it be best to do? Well, definitely don't piss them off, to start with. Probably the best approach is to get on their good side. In his theory of religion, Bataille says that there is an intimacy, the intimacy of animals who are in the world like water and water, which we seek to restore through sacrifice. Quoting here, The first fruits of the harvest, or head of livestock, are sacrificed in order to remove the plant and the animal, together with the farmer and the stock raiser, from the world of things. The destruction that sacrifice is intended to bring about is not annihilation. The thing— only the thing is what sacrifice means to destroy in the victim. Sacrifice destroys an object's real ties of subordination. It draws the victim out of the world of utility and restores it to that of an unintelligible caprice.
What binds us to an object, what makes us unnecessarily objectify things in the world, is that they serve the ends that reality constrains us with, namely survival and desire, and desire foremost because survival is a desire to live. If we consume, irregardless of our survival or desire, as we do in sacrifice, the world of subject and object is transcended for both. Which brings me back to what it was that Adam and Eve told Cain and Abel of the Garden of Eden and their exile from it. What could they say of a world in which there was neither good nor evil? I don't at all know, but it doesn't seem unreasonable that there might be a part of that life that their progeny might see as lost or wrong and might wish to restore or rectify. Bataille suggests that sacrifice would be the very means to accomplish this. My sermon this week is on motivation. What is it that motivates any one of us to act the way that we do? Obviously, survival and procreation are among the base instincts that motivate us. But I think that many of those who are hearing this have time to do things beyond just surviving and procreating. Movie theaters, computer games, amusement parks, escape rooms, internet media distributors, and the like all exist and even thrive so clearly there's enough surplus to get us beyond mere survival. And we can choose between our activities in a way that has not been available to us for most of human history. So how do we decide what to do? What motivates us? Obviously, each individual should seek to maximize their own happiness, but that's a very complex thing because our own happiness is entangled with the happiness of every other human and probably much of the rest of the living world as well. For example, I can't imagine myself perfectly happy and every other being living in abject misery. Clearly, my happiness is entangled with the happiness of others, and I don't think I could detach myself from that without detaching myself from my own humanity. I also know that what we should do and what will make us happy, at least in the immediate sense, do not always coincide. Yes, we're seeking to maximize our own happiness, but sometimes our maximum happiness is limited by moral obligations, and sometimes our happiness is contingent on our knowledge that we did what we needed to do, even if it caused us pain and suffering. I think we have to be wary of our natural and rational concern for the well-being of others being hijacked by those with unscrupulous motives. For every aspect of human nature that can possibly be exploited, there are teeming masses of people only too eager to do so. And what's more, we've been socialized to passively accept this exploitation. I've been reading this great book, Flow, by the author Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, that's last name is spelled... C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T-M-I-H-A-L-Y-I. -S -S -E and he says, Civilization is built on the repression of individual desires. It would be impossible to maintain any kind of social order, any complex division of labor, unless society's members were forced to take on the habits and skills that the culture required, whether the individual liked it or not. Socialization, or the transformation of a human organism into a person who functions successfully within a particular social system, cannot be avoided. The essence of socialization is to make people dependent on social controls, to have them respond predictably to rewards and punishment. If we're to take a lesson from the story of Cain and Abel, at least with regards to my own interpretation, it's that we should seek to work for ourselves first and foremost, to discover for ourselves what drives us and what makes us happy, and to pursue those ends. That's something easily said, but much less easily done. Escaping from socialization takes a great deal of hard work. Last week I discussed how society sends us messages about who we are that are generally false and ill-intentioned, and this is part of that. 
It can be hard for us to parse out what it is that truly makes us happy from the things that we have been told are supposed to make us happy. I've recommended meditation in the past, and I still believe that this is one of the best ways to cut through the noise of life and get at who we truly are and what will make us truly happy. Those are some of the most intrinsically satanic pursuits I can imagine, and in that sense, I think it would benefit everyone to be a bit of a satanist. I'd certainly like to see fewer people working towards the rewards in some afterlife that we're promised by religious authorities and work towards happiness in this life, because this is the only life that we can be sure of. Up next, on Friday, I will likely be publishing a story on spiritual teachers and gurus, taking a critical look especially at some of the more problematic teachers from my own Buddhist lineage, and then next Wednesday, one of my old stories, this one on the Nicene Creed and the nature of religious creeds in general. A Satanist Reads the Bible is written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, with music by me as well, all thanks to the generous support of my partner, my fans, and especially my patrons. Thank you all so much. Thank you for joining me today. Always thought that us. Awesome.